From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. Welcome to the show. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and we're going to discuss with my guest tonight, Claire Berlinski, The Fate of Europe. I wanted to start off by talking about a, a book I've been reading lately. It's called The Suicide of the West by Richard Koch and Chris Smith. It's uh, it's not the suicide of the West that James Burnham wrote many years ago, which I'm very fond of. It's new. And there's a line in it that I profoundly disagree with, and I'm going to explain why I disagree with it. In the book, they wrote... Anyone arguing that the West is in decline would have to be a mental contortionist of formidable skill and sleight of hand. Well, maybe I'm a contortionist of formidable skill because I'm going to argue that the West is in decline. And and to start out my argument, I'm going to admit that people are living good, that there's plenty of work, especially in the United States, and that things seem pretty nice right now. But a philosopher once warned against judging things superficially as they appear today, as they appear in the present. The good thing of the moment is always bound to become something else further on down the road. We have to judge things, I think, not as they are at the moment, but as they are becoming. What is it that we are turning into? And I think that we can see that our wealth doesn't always make us nice people, doesn't always guarantee that we're raising our children in the right way. Um, I think that if we look at America and we look at Europe, because we're going to look at Europe tonight, and we see the declining birth rate in both countries, we can see there's a problem right there, that people don't want to have children. If we look at the divorce rate, what is becoming of the family? What is becoming of our spirituality? Look at the decline in church attendance. Look at what's happening in the churches and what's happening with the way people worship and the way people believe. It is not what we are, but what we are becoming that ultimately shows whether the peace and prosperity of the moment is going to last or going to abruptly and horribly end. That which appears good and desirable may, in fact, be leading to destruction. Human ideas of the moment may ultimately take us to the slaughter. And a certain type of freedom, which we have enjoyed, may actually be licentiousness and bring us to tyranny. So with these thoughts, we're going to discuss with my guest tonight, Claire Berlinski, the fate of Europe and where Europe is headed. We'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for Wivage Oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me on the line is Claire Berlinski, author of Medicine Europe, 
She's born and raised in the United States, has lived and worked in Britain, France, Switzerland, Thailand, Laos, and Turkey, has worked as a journalist and consultant. She has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Review, the Weekly Standard, and Policy Review, among other publications. Berlinski holds a degree in modern history and a doctorate in international relations from Oxford University and has studied French literature at the Sorbonne. She now divides her time between Paris and Istanbul. Welcome to the show, Claire. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me, and thanks for that really nice introduction. Well, very good. I I read your book, and Claire, you have a very uh, interesting uh, history. You live in Europe, and uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, your background and your living in Europe. Well, right now, actually, I live in Turkey, which is in some ways even more interesting than living in Europe. I never intended to spend as much of my life in Europe as I did, but I ended up spending more and more time because I I grew increasingly fascinated with what was what was transpiring in front of my eyes. It seemed that every, every time I thought about coming back to America, something would happen in Europe, and I'd say to myself, I really need to look at this a little bit more. Um, now, my family background is interesting here. My grandparents were refugees from the Nazis, and they came from Germany via France, where they spent 10 years after Hitler came to power until Hitler chased them out of France as well. So I grew up with a personal connection to the story of Europe's destruction, the story of... of Europe's self-immolation, and I was always interested in how it came to be that my family came to be Americans. So I, I didn't choose to go to Latin America when I was 20 years old. I went to Europe because I felt drawn to it. I felt like I had to understand better where I came from and how I came to be. And then I continued to find myself feeling like I had to know more to understand better, and I feel like you can't fully understand Europe without speaking European languages. It takes a long time to, to acquire that. And I began to write about Europe. I began to support myself by writing about Europe. Um, and after a certain point, it becomes specialty. After a certain point, you become known as, as the go-to person when someone has a question about what's going on in France. So I ended up staying for a very long time in France. And then I ended up moving to Turkey for the most simple and human reasons. I fell in love with someone who lived in Turkey. He's an American photojournalist who was working in Istanbul. So that's how I ended up in Turkey. And I can see already that we're going down exactly the same path. You get more and more interested in the country. You begin to understand it better and better. And you feel I have to stay longer to really understand it. Of course, Turkey's right next to Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're getting the perspective of that. Uh, maybe I could just ask you, what do you think is, is, is going on in Iraq and how is it going to play? out, do you think, just from seeing it on the ground from Turkey? I think it's really, really too soon to tell what the long-term repercussions of the Iraq war are going to be. I think that, um, you know, I, I was one of the people who supported the invasion and who have come to believe that my support for that was extremely naive and misguided, that it was um, a far bigger undertaking than I realized, and... I am now terribly, desperately worried about what we may have unleashed in Iraq. Hmm. And um, like a whole generation of people who, who thought that was a great idea, I'm morally responsible for that. And it's, 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 it's something that causes me I, I, an indescribable amount of, of distress when I, can, when I contemplate what's going on now because you can't, can't open a newspaper, you can't look on the Internet without seeing the consequences of the policy we pursued there, which are which are 
unbelievably disastrous. Yeah, it seems that uh, there have been mistakes and there hasn't been the know-how in Washington to navigate through it. It seems very much so. Now, I, I still have not decided whether it was basically a a feasible policy that was executed badly or whether the whole idea was was incredibly naive and, and misguided root and branch. I, I don't know whether we can ever even answer that question, but I do feel that we are now in a position where where we have no good options and where the only moral option certainly we can't we cannot simply abandon Iraq right now. We can't yeah. simply pull out and say, Well, we leave you to your genocide and that's not an acceptable option. But what, what the good options are I don't know. Yeah. I'm, you know, I am living on the border with Iraq now, so it does have a, a, a great immediacy for me. I certainly see how the Iraq war has affected the Turkish perception of the United States. It hasn't been good. I mean, it's been it's been a, a, a real it's been a real wedge in a relationship with a country that should be one of our has historically been a great ally of the United States. And um, I wish I had really good wisdom to offer you about it. I wish I had some some easy answer to say this is what we need to do. And I don't, and I'm not going to pretend I do. With me is Claire Berlinski, author of Medicine Europe. I I read your book, and I've reread parts of it, and it's very good. And for Americans who are baffled by Europe, we really, I think sometimes we feel a little hurt because we hear this anti-Americanism coming out of Europe, and we don't understand where it's coming from, and sometimes we don't really believe it because we know that we're well-intentioned, whatever our faults. We don't really mean anybody harm. And when we hear ourselves characterized as, you know, I remember seeing the French president use the word arrogant in describing the United States, and it was, I, I don't know, it was, it, the experience was shocking, actually. Yes, there's a lot of rhetoric that I think was really shocking to American ears because anyone who was born here, who was educated here, who votes here knows that the words that are being used to describe Americans are simply not in the hearts of most Americans. Most Americans are not imperialists, certainly not in any conscious way. Most Americans are not warmongers. The last thing most Americans want is war. Most Americans are horrified by war. And I think that there's a huge disconnect between the way Americans perceive themselves and the kind of rhetoric about Americans that's coming out of Europe. And that's one of the things that I hoped to try to explain for an American audience, why it is that you're seeing the rise of this kind of hysterical anti-Americanism, anti-Americanism that has nothing to do, very little to do with any real faults, any real characteristics of American society. Now, one thing I should say right from the start is, of course, American society has faults. Of course, Americans are not perfect people. Of course, this is not a utopia. Of course, America has crime. It has it has injustice. It has many, many real faults. What I'm talking about are the hysterical characterizations of Americans as being, on the whole, evil and destructive people. And these are very real caricatures that you see in the European press that you are you hear held widely among European people if you speak to them. You'll hear things about Americans that Americans know just don't have any real relationship to the truth. And so one of the things I'm looking looking at in my book is the rise of anti-Americanism and its relationship to the rise of other really pernicious ideologies like anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism again in Europe, the rise of 
neo-fascism, the rise of neo-communism, the rise of a number of ideologies which tend to go together and which are related to a number of other historical trends in Europe, which I'm trying to understand and to look at. So that's what my book is about. And you kind of describe this, this anti-Americanism as a cult, as, mm-hmm. as a, something that you can't reason with. Well, what I've described it as, as a pseudo-religion, and I use that word very deliberately, because one of the arguments that I make, and I think it's a really important one to understand, is to what degree Europe is in a unique situation with respect to ideology in as much as it is a post-Christian society, a continent where for more than a millennia, everyone was a Christian, There was nothing but Christianity as an ideology on offer. Everyone's lives were organized by the Christian church, everyone's daily routines, everyone's understanding of his place in the universe, his understanding of his place in respect to his rulers, political leaders, his understanding of his destiny, his understanding of every aspect of human existence was filtered through the church. And then, at roughly the time of the Enlightenment, the influence of Christianity in Europe begins waning and suddenly almost completely disappears in, in the tail end of the 19th century. Now it is extremely rare to find people of a deep Christian faith. It's been replaced by any number of surrogate faiths of other ideologies because it's my deep conviction, and I think most people, if they think about it, will agree with me, that it is in the nature of the human being to want to believe in something that gives his life meaning, whether it's a religion or whether it's a political ideology. In order to find meaning in life, one must believe in something bigger than what you are, bigger than your own personal pleasure, bigger than your own small insular world. You have to believe that there is something bigger to which you're, which gives your life meaning. And in many ways, the last two centuries of European history can be seen as a series of struggles to find meaning in a post-Christian world. And I think one of the reasons that we're seeing a rise of anti-Americanism is because it's an ordering ideology in, on a continent where many different ideologies have been tried and many have failed, among them fascism, communism, even, even the devotion to the, the cult of science, not to science itself, but to the idea that science will solve all of humanity's problems and bring utopia. All of these have failed to bring about the promised utopia. So you're seeing a rise in Europe now of a number of pseudo-religious sects. And anti-Americanism, as as is anti-globalism, is a kind of pseudo-religious sect. I don't mean that reasonable criticism of the United States is a pseudo-religious sect. I mean that when it's infused with a kind of hysterical, irrational passion, when people refuse to acknowledge that there may be positive things about America or that America may be just a country, uh, not, not a force for global evil, not something like the Death Star, but a country with flaws and with strengths, then you're in the grip of a kind of hysteria, and you have to ask why. And that's one of the questions I try to answer. Uh, with me is Claire Berlinski, author of Menace in Europe. We're discussing why Europe's crisis is also America's crisis. You know, when you're describing this, I keep thinking back to Friedrich Nietzsche saying that he was writing the history of the next 200 years, and it was about the advent of European nihilism. Yeah, well, nihilism is a powerful theme in in Europe, and it's one that is that accounts for a lot, certainly. It certainly accounts for a lot in German history. 
It's something that you would expect to find in a post-religious society because it is extremely hard, as I said, for people to give their lives meaning in the absence of a religious context. It's not impossible, but it is very difficult. And one of the things that you see flourishing is nihilism and variance on nihilism. One of the things, for example, I point out, in Europe you have extraordinarily high rates of suicide these days. I mean, hmm. The second leading cause of death among young people uh, after, after transport accidents. In the United States, it's the eighth leading cause of death. So you're seeing people who have tried to come up with a solution to the question, why am I here, and they haven't been able to find a satisfactory answer. A kind of comprehensive nihilism is another way of reacting to that. In Germany, you see it to a remarkable degree in German pop culture, this sense of deep cynicism, of a rejection of bourgeois values, a rejection of a rejection of human sensibility. You see this in German pop culture to a degree that I think is very striking and very interesting. You can also say that you see a lot of terribly, terribly sinister things in American pop culture, but what you're seeing in German pop culture, and particularly, I discuss this in my book in the band Rammstein, which is one of the pop, most popular bands in Germany, um, you're seeing an imagery that derives almost directly from the Third Reich. Now, of course, it's not acknowledged as such. It's not... No one says this is Third Reich imagery, but you're seeing a, du a continuity uh, in the kinds of images that are being used, the vocabulary that's being used. And I find this extremely interesting, that there's a persistence of this kind of nihilistic vocabulary, nihilistic way of thinking. And I, I'm happy to give some examples of those lyrics if you think your listeners would be interested. Yes. Um, just for the sake of the listeners to explain, I, I got out my dictionary years ago when I was in graduate school and I looked up uh, nihilism and it gave three definitions. Epistemological nihilism is the belief that, that there, nothing is true, basically. Uh, metaphysical nihilism is the belief that there is no reality. And moral nihilism is the belief that there's no right and wrong. Well, I'm so glad you just gave us that definition because I'm going to read to you some representative lyrics from Rammstein, which I express again is, is probably the most popular German language band in history. Here are some representative lyrics. Nothing is for you. Nothing was for you. Nothing remains for you forever. It's absolutely what you just described. It's mm -hmm. a nihilistic expression. And I can go on and on and on like this with lyrics from, from, from Rammstein. I think it's extremely significant that they are as popular as they are. I think these words are very significant. And I don't think that we should say because of them, oh, Germany is heading down the path of Nazism again. Of course not. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying Germany is not a democratic country. It is a democratic country. I'm not even saying that German democracy is at risk because of this ban. I'm saying that this current of thought remains very vital in Europe and is related, even though it might not seem to be at first glance, to the kind of anti-Americanism we're seeing. Yes. Because what you're seeing are people struggling to find ideologies to infuse their lives with meaning to counter this kind of nihilism, this kind of deep sense that there is nothing of meaning. And so with the collapse of Christianity, we have this crisis, which of course entails other things like appeasement, like uh, the falling birth rate, the influx of Muslim immigrants to take the places of the workers that were not born, mm -hmm. and all of the disruptions and the dislocations and the destabilization that that implies. That is exactly right. These are all, I think, consequences of, in a larger sense, the collapse of religious belief, in a more immediate sense, the total catastrophe of the First and the Second World Wars. After that, you see 
all of these trends, which are complicated trends, and, and there's no one cause for each of the, any one of them, but they are related to what I'm talking about. You see mm-hmm. the trend of massive demographic change, where Europeans are no longer having enough children to achieve what demographers call the replacement rate, which is the rate, the fertility rate you need to have a society stay the same size. Right now, the average number of children that a European woman has in her reproductive life is about 1.4, whereas it needs to be 2.1 to be at the replacement rate. You don't see that anywhere now except for in France and almost everywhere else in Europe. Oh, Ireland is quite close. But everywhere else in Europe, you have extremely low rates of fertility, unprecedented low rates of fertility, and rates of fertility that are so low that demographers who look at this note that never in human history has any society recovered from having such low fertility rates. Um, You have that coupled with extremely expensive, extensive, elaborate welfare systems, which are predicated on the assumption that the younger generation is going to pay into the welfare system to take care of the older generation. You don't have a younger generation that's big enough to do that anymore, and you have an aging fairly healthy older generations. And now for the first time in history, you have more Italians over the age of 60 than you do under the age of 20. This has never happened in history before. Impossible to imagine how that younger generation is going to support the older generation. Now, if you don't have anyone paying in, you have to solve that problem. You have a dilemma. You can only solve it in two possible ways. Either you dismantle the welfare state or you import young people. And the solution that the Europeans have chosen rather than dismantling the welfare state, is importing immigrant workers. Now, sometimes this works out wonderfully. Sometimes you get infusion of fresh cultures, fresh fresh ideas. Sometimes it doesn't work out so well. And in Europe, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of places where it hasn't worked out very well. A lot of the listeners will probably remember the riots in France in 2005, Um, These were riots that were mostly taking place in neighborhoods of immigrants, um, ghettos that surround French metropolitan areas. And they were extremely, extremely violent riots. Um, They were emblematic of a deep social problem, a social problem which everyone knows about in Europe, but few people will talk about, frankly. Hmm. You've got tremendous problems of integration. You've got tremendous problems now of real radicalism among many Islamic immigrants, certainly not all of them, but among a a significant enough minority that you have a real social problem on your hands, Um, a social problem which will not be easily solved. And no one really knows what to do about it. And those riots in France, I seem to recall, what was that, a year ago last uh, fall, was it? And it was 20,000 cars were burned well, you know, an average Saturday night in some of these neighborhoods involves 100 cars burned. That was a statistic that floored me. The police think it's normal, not even news, newsworthy, that 100 cars would get burned in French suburbs every Saturday night. And these are Muslim rioters? They're, well, not all of them would, I think, ideologically identify as Muslim, but I think a very significant number of them were from Muslim countries um, or in the descendants of immigrants from Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. Um, there was certainly a lot of Islamic language being used. Um, to the, it, is, it is hard to say to what extent these are Muslim riots and to what extent they are riots of people who are poor and disenfranchised and, and not feeling as if they have a full stake in society. Mm-hmm. What is certainly true is that the former Muslims are more likely to, to become the latter, that there is something about coming from a Muslim country which is predisposing people not to assimilate well, not to move up the socioeconomic ladder. 
a lot of reasons for this. Part of them have to do with Islam, but also part of them have to do with the immigrants coming from countries where they were already socioeconomically among the least competent performers. Um, for example, you have Turks coming to Germany who are not urbanized, secularized Turks, but rather rural Turks from Anatolia, from eastern Turkey, who are coming from very poor villages. So they're not the Turks who would naturally do well in a modern, knowledge-based, technological economy, because they're, they're coming from a very underdeveloped part of Turkey. And this is true throughout Europe. You see people coming from the poorest parts of the countries from which they're emigrating, the most rural, the least industrialized. And then everyone's looking at this and saying, my gosh, they're not really doing so well, are they? Well, surprise, they're not equipped to. They're not equipped to. With me is Claire Berlinski, author of Medicine Europe, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 your first choice for the good news and the local news. The overwhelming response from throughout all of Atlantic City, Cape May, and suburban Philadelphia to our exciting lineup of programs begins with Harry Hurley and Hurley in the Mornings from 7 to 11. Then at 12 noon, it's your chance to call in and talk with Jay Sekulow live. That's right, Jay moves to his new time at 12 noon. It's your chance to talk live with Jay. Then at 1 p.m., it's New Life Live with Steve Arterburn and the gang. As always, your questions are answered live right here on WIBG 1020. And at 2 p.m., join Dr. Charles Stanley for his new time slot right here at WIBG for In Touch. We're so thankful for the overwhelming response to WIBG 1020, and we thank you. And we encourage you to please sponsor and support the advertisers and programs you hear on Atlantic City, Cape May's number one home for Christian news talk and local two-way talk. WIBG 1020 AM. Now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. All right, this is Jeff Nyquist and the Jeff Nyquist Program. With me is Claire Berlinski, author of Medicine Europe, Why the Continent's Crisis is America's Too. And we've been talking about the difficulties in Europe with the rising nihilism. They no longer believe in Christianity. They no longer believe in anything, really. And now people have been moving in because the birth rate has fallen and they're immigrants from other countries and they do have beliefs. And those beliefs, Claire, would you say that Islam, there's something incompatible, and you were talking about the peasants from Turkey, something incompatible about Islam and the way Europe lives? There are many things that are incompatible about traditional Islam as it's practiced in 90% of the Islamic world and the way Europeans live. But it's been focused on so much. People have made this point so often that I think I should focus on the additional point, which I think is really important to consider, which is that coming from highly underdeveloped countries or highly underdeveloped regions in developing countries also makes you very ill-equipped to function in a secular, democratic, developed society. For example, when you talk about Bangladeshis in Britain, you're mostly talking about Bangladeshis from Silet province. Now, you probably have never heard of Silet province. Most people haven't heard of Silet province. It's a tiny province in Bangladesh, which is the most backwards region of Bangladesh, which is, and Bangladesh is already not your most developed country. It's the most backwards region. It's tea plantations. It's people who live in villages who have never had recourse to modern institutions, the idea of voting, the idea of paying taxes, the idea of a legal system where you appeal to a judge who's not someone you know, who's not a village elder, all of this is going to be completely alien to someone from this region. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
someone like this comes to Britain and it is completely incomprehensible, completely overwhelming. It might as well be traveling to the moon. Then you add on top of that any number of Islamic traditions which are incompatible with the idea of secularism. I mean, the idea of, the, of Islamic law, of Sharia, which, which doesn't distinguish between the ideal state and the ideal religious practice. And there's a long tradition, one that's been one that's been won in blood um, in, in Christianity, of secularism, of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but mm-hmm. having a private religious belief. This is not a battle that has been determined, fought, and won in, in, in the Islamic world. I mean, there, there are countries like Turkey, which are secular and Islamic. But by and large, this is not a concept in most of the Islamic world, but it makes a lot of sense. In, in fact, uh, the Koran is sort of the constitution in the mind of a lot of these people. Very much so, very much so. And I am certainly not saying that it is impossible to reconcile the Quran with modernity or democracy. Many, many Islamic scholars are trying to do that right now. Many Islamic reformers, many Islamic thinkers are trying to figure out ways of understanding the Quran which are compatible with modernity. And we shouldn't discount that, and we should give them all of our support, because there, it is possible to be a Muslim and to be a Democrat. I've seen it. But most of the people who are immigrating to Europe are not coming from that kind of sophisticated background. They're coming from a background which has barely, barely equipped them to read the Quran in their own language or in Arabic. Mm-hmm. And no less to understand the complexities of a parliamentary debating system, of, of the kind of education that you need to have in order to succeed in a highly industrialized society. And this is bewildering. Now, on top of that, what you have is the modern doctrine of Islamism, which will tell them you might be at the bottom of the socioeconomic heap here in Germany or in France or in in Britain. And people here might be disdainful toward you, and you might feel like you're bewildered and people look down on you. But here's the truth. The truth is these people are infidels. These people are actually beneath you. They're actually like pigs and dogs and apes. You are the chosen one because you are a Muslim. They are the ones who are worthy of your contempt rather than your esteem. This is the real danger when you have, when you have foreign-born imams preaching this kind of doctrine to people who are already feeling insecure, already feeling dislocated, already feeling that they don't know what their place is anymore. And when you have that, you have a genuinely dangerous ideology, and you have the bleeding ground in which it can really, really take hold. That uh, description sounds almost like Germany with the rise of the Third Reich. You have people who feel humiliated. Exactly. And they're, they're told they have a reason to be proud and that their enemies are degenerate and that they should take up the sword against their enemy. That is exactly right, and that's exactly why it is so frightening, because when you have people who feel humiliated and they are given an ideology that takes their humiliation and makes it into a potent force for hatred, I don't think there are more dangerous ideologies historically. Historically, I think that is one of the most dangerous phenomena you can have. You know, I've read that uh, Islamic clerics are very gra- much gravitate toward the protocols of the elders of Zion, that they carry this around with the many uh, Muslim clerics in uh, Palestine and Egypt, and that it, it, it is uh, their anti-Jewishness. You know, the Nazification was very complete in Europe, but it wasn't very complete in the Middle East. I, I live in Turkey, and I've seen I've seen Mein Kampf uh, in bookstores everywhere. It's, uh, and I've seen I've seen the Protocol of the Elders of Zion. It's it's an interesting thing to think that Hitler's ideas have now been thoroughly discredited. You can't be a serious politician or a serious religious figure in Europe if you say I'm a Nazi and I believe what Hitler did was great. You can't. 
It's just not politically acceptable to say that. You will instantly be silenced. You will possibly be prosecuted. But his ideas, Nazi ideas, spread very widely throughout the Middle East, and there was no process of denazification. The Middle East was never was never invaded by the Allied powers, and people with Nazi ideas were never forcibly evicted from office. They were never shunned. So these ideas are really, they really still have a great life and a great credibility throughout the Middle East, and in a degree that is utterly shocking to Americans. I think most Americans, if they were aware of the degree to which these ideas were taken seriously in the Middle East, would be genuinely shocked and appalled. And the prospect of these people having weapons of mass destruction on top of it. It's not one that thrills me. It really no. isn't. No, it can't. Um, I think that's one of the bigger understatements I've issued in, in this conversation. Um, yes. I, find, I find the idea horrifying, and I really genuinely don't know what to do about it. Now, you talked about the anti-Semitism and the, the radical Islam and, and uh, neo-communism and uh, uh, neo-Nazism, all kind of sharing uh, anti-Americanism and sort of, in, in ways, being able to ally and work together and sort of be on the same side? One of the most fascinating things that I've observed in Europe is this strange alliance, particularly between the traditional left in Europe and the Islamic right. It's almost incomprehensible because everything the left claims it stands for is anathema, to traditional Islamists, uh-huh. uh, or to, even to traditional Islam, which views, for example, homosexuality as a terrible sin and offense for which people should be stoned, mm-hmm. um, which is completely diametrically opposed to modern feminism. It, it is amazing to me to see people who have for years been promoting feminist causes allying themselves with Islamists. For example, in the, in the whole headscarf debate um, in France, there was a there was a huge debate about whether or not girls in public schools should be allowed to wear the headscarf. Now, you can view this debate in a lot of ways, and I haven't even made up my mind about it, but one thing I think is extraordinary was to see Western feminists describing this as a matter of feminist choice. These girls should have the right to choose to wear what they please. If this was a matter of they should have the right not to wear a bra, that is not the debate. The debate is should these girls be forced by their fathers and their brothers to wear a headscarf in the knowledge that one of the punishments we have seen has been harassment, has been rape, has been even even death. I mean, there have been girls who have been killed for going out unveiled in Europe by their families. Hmm. Now, when you know this, how can, you can possibly say that the natural feminist point of view is to be in favor yes. of legislation which is intended to give girls the right to choose not to wear the headscarf? It's mind-boggling to me. How do you understand this? How do you explain this? I mean, the best explanation I can come up with is that the traditional left is so deeply steeped in the idea that anything that comes from a third world country is good and noble compared to anything that we do in Europe, that by definition, any Islamic value is a good value, even if it's one that stands against the most fundamental values that we hold there. And I find this, I find this extraordinarily difficult to grasp. They are clinging to Marxism above and beyond the particulars of the the day-to-day way of living that they supposedly uphold. I, I don't even know if it's classical Marxism. It's a, it's, um, a sort of a neo-Marxism that's rooted yeah. in the, the ideas of, say, Franz Fanon and the Wretched of the Earth uh, that worships the developing world, that worships the so-called non-aligned as being representative of a pure, more noble, less corrupted, less materialistic way of life. And 
it's a completely naive view of the developing world, as anyone who's actually lived in the developing world will attest. I, I, I say that, that. Some of these people actually have lived in the developing world, so it's amazing to me that they could continue to hold these beliefs, these leftist scholars, who will embrace the most reactionary ideas because they're being espoused by immigrants. It's, it's a very interesting thing to see. Yeah. But yes, you have leftists alive with the reactionaries in this topsy-turvy world that makes no sense. And you also have reactionaries, right-wing parties, that you really hope they don't ever come to power because they, they really do espouse values that Americans would find completely unacceptable. But there's a red-brown alliance, then you're saying, between kind of people who are on the far right and people who are on the far left, because they both hate the bourgeoisie or they hate capitalism, and they both don't like America. Could that be it? You're seeing very strange alliances among groups who are united by the view that Israel and the United States are... The, the big bad guys. An axis of evil, so to speak, and who will believe this no matter what you say. Uh, and I've had many, many arguments with people who believe this, and you come up against a bedrock of total irrationality and resistance to argument, which is very curious, which hmm. is very, very curious. I mean, I, I don't know whether you've been following these campaigns to boycott Israel um, by British universities. It seems to be one every every year. There's There's now a campaign underway to boycott Israeli scholars, to, to bar them from working with, with British scholars. Um, you can sit down with someone who's organizing this boy, a boycott like this. I've, I've tried and say, even assuming your premise, which is Israel is a gross violator of human rights, I'm not conceding that, I'm just saying with the sake of argument, why are you singling out this violator of human rights as opposed to, say, Russia or China or any other Middle Eastern country? Why is it that you're focusing on Israel? And I have yet to hear anyone give me any kind of answer that makes logical sense to me, even remotely logical sense. It's blind hatred. It, it's, it's a hatred, and it's also a self-righteousness. Huh. Part of it's trendy. Part of it is just that that's what right-thinking people believe. And, and part of it is hysteria. And it's a very weird thing to see because, you know, 20 years ago when I first went to England as a student, I remember um, my stepfather mentioned something to me about the British being anti-Semitic. And I said, no, no, they're not. They're really, I haven't detected any of that. I really hadn't. So I thought that was a long-buried sentiment that anti-Semitism had really been burned out of Europe. And I was wrong. Wow. With me is Claire Berlinski, author of Menace in Europe, Why the Continent's Crisis is America's Too, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. Now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I'm Jeff Nyquist. We're back with the show. With me is Claire Berlinski, author of Medicine Europe, Why the Continent's Crisis is America's Too. And I'm reminded of something that Joseph Schumpeter once said. It was kind of interesting. Uh, he said that modern liberalism rested on illiberal supports. 
uh, sort of a contradiction, and that as Europe advanced in liberalism, it got rid of, it destroyed the illiberal supports. Those would be the church, the uh, aristocracy, the warrior aristocracy that came out of medieval Europe, and of course, we formed into nation states in Europe, and now after the two world wars, as you point out in your book, Claire, the nation state now is kind of uh, washed up, and you talk about the European Union as a kind of fantasy. Tell us about the European Union. Does it have a chance? Well, does it have a chance at what? Does it have a chance of being a very large bureaucracy? Sure. Does that have a chance of making anyone in Europe feel that this is a passionate cause to which they, with which they can identify? No. I mean, I don't think anyone in Europe thinks I, I would sing anthems to the EU or that I would die for the EU or that the sight of the EU flag makes me well up in tears or that any of the powerful passions that, say, Americans feel for America because it's not a nation. Let, let me go back a little and we'll talk about what a nation actually is. A nation is a group of people with a shared history, a shared language, a shared sense of common values, common national myths, um, founding myths, uh, shared things that are as, as simple as a shared sense of humor. And if I meet another American anywhere I am in the world, even if it's the most remote corner of rural Rajasthan, if I meet another American, we will both basically get why John Stewart is funny. We might disagree about how funny he is, but we'll both basically get it. This is not true if you take um, someone from Liverpool and someone from Calabria. The person from Liverpool is not going to get why a Calabrian joke is hilarious. These sorts of things are actually really important in getting people to feel that they have a shared sense of purpose, that they want to sacrifice for one another, that they're in it together. There is nothing in the history of the EU to make people feel that way. In fact, what you have is generation upon generation, in fact, century upon century, even millennia upon millennia, of mutual ethnic hatreds, rivalry, bloodletting, and finally, unbelievably destructive European wars. And not even finally, but throughout history, unbelievably destructive European wars. So ultimately, at the end of the Second World War, you have what's essentially an intellectual project. You have people saying, we can't ever have this happen again. We must do something to make sure it doesn't happen again. I know what we'll do. We'll decide that we're all one peaceful, harmonious family. It's a great decision. It's a noble decision. It's, it's a wonderful goal to aspire to. But is it realistic? I would say no, not at all realistic. And you find that very quickly, when pushed to the wall, the ordinary European doesn't want it. They don't want a European superstate. You've got, you got the French and then the Dutch voting no in these referendums about further, further, ceding further sovereignty to the EU. And they don't want it because EU bureaucrats are, by and large, are not people who inspire they, they certainly don't have any charisma. They're not people who inspire faith, and they seem to want to regulate the living daylights out of every European's life yeah. in a way that's resented enormously. You know, I was interested in your characterization in your book of uh, Europe being governed by new mandarins uh, who have arrived at their positions through competitive examinations. Yes, as opposed to through elections, and that's a very important point. Um, most people who work for the EU are... And there are there are MPs who are elected to the EU, but most of the bureaucracy is completely unelected. And the way they get there is not by proving their merit in a free market system. They, they haven't they haven't been appointed because they've done so well at running a company or because they've they succeeded in any other arena. It's because from a fairly early age, from high school, from basically the equivalent of high school, they have passed a lot of competitive exams 
which have put them in the track for an, an EU bureaucracy job. And these are highly coveted jobs. They are some of the most coveted jobs. If you, if you grow up in, in a wealthy, privileged family in Europe, it is very likely that instead of saying, I want to be a captain of industry, I want to start my own company, you'll think, I want to work for the EU. Because these are, are protected jobs. Once you're in, you're in for life. They have great benefits. They're highly prestigious, highly prestigious jobs. And um, the problem is that the training for them is not really the kind of training that gives people a whole lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So it's a very basic word, but it is an important qualification if you're going to be running people's lives that you have some experience of what those real lives are about. And that's why we look for it in elected politicians. We're always looking for evidence that that person has some idea what an ordinary person's day is like. It's why the first George Bush managed to lose an election because he didn't understand what a scanner was at a supermarket. Hmm. Yes. And so you have this you have this Mandarin class, basically. You have a, um, a, a self-perpetuating elite, which is very out of touch with ordinary people's experiences and which also can't be fired. No one really knows what they're up to. And ordinary people don't like them, and you can't blame them for not liking them. And they don't trust them, and you can't blame them for not trusting them. So I think the chances that ordinary Europeans are going to go along in a docile way with continued projects for the increasing bureaucratization and de-democratization of European politics, pretty small. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, you got a Europe that has ceased to believe in anything. But the thing they choose to do as a project is something no one can, can put their heart into. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. And the things they do put their heart into are what I, what I call it in my book, they're black market ideologies, because no one will overtly say, this is an ideology to which I've devoted my life. No one will end up saying, I have devoted my life to anti-Americanism because I believe that this is the way forward for a transcendent utopia. It's not like that. It's much more sneaky. It's much more backdoor. You have to you have to get the feeling from being at these rallies, which which I have been, where I've you know I've seen people protesting the United States. You get a feeling of belonging at last. But then if you ask people what this about, is this is this a religion? Of course not. We're we're far too civilized for religion. We're not religious. We you know we're rationalists. We're we're enlightened, we're, we're scientific, we don't believe in religion. But we have, we have this profound admiration for Islam, of course, because you know, Islam comes from the developing world, and that's, that's wonderful. But we ourselves would never be so super, superstitious and primitive as to be religious. And yet, you see them behaving in ways that really have a lot in common with the way people do when they're in a state of religious ecstasy. Mm-hmm. The rationalism has not eradicated that irrational side of their character. No, it hasn't. It really hasn't. It, it doesn't seem to be possible. Europe has not found a way to eradicate something that is, is absolutely essential to the way human beings organize themselves and live their lives, they, that everyone wants some kind of meaning in their lives, something bigger than themselves. And uh, if you don't get that from a belonging to a powerful, vigorous, vibrant religion, you'll get it somewhere else. Now, talking about religion, uh, nationalism, which was also like a religion in Europe, Very which is so, yeah. still under the surface, and it's you said it's like not respectable for us to believe in God anymore in Europe. Uh, this is the way they feel. They're all rationalists now. Same thing about nationalism. Uh, it caused all these wars. It did all these horrible things. I had this conversation with two Polish intellectual friends of mine, and they were talking in a very patriotic terms, and I, I referred to them as Polish nationalists. 
and boy, did they get upset with me. Oh, I'm sure it was as if you called them Polish fascists. Yes, it was. And they said, no, we're not Polish nationalists. We're patriots. We're Polish patriots. And I thought, but wait a minute, you're splitting hairs. A, a, a Polish patriot is a someone who believes in the nation of Poland and the history and the language and the culture of Poland and wants to support it and defend it and, and build on it. No, they said, you Americans, you know, you, you have George Washington and you believe these sort of things. But here in Europe, it isn't like this at all. Yeah, and I can't tell you how many conversations like that I've had with people who um, are simultaneously longing to feel the sense of belonging that nationalism offers people and horrified by its implications. Again, I think it's one of those things that's built into people, and I'm not going to try and explain why it's built into people, that you want to feel that you belong to a larger people and that that's a worthy thing, that that's a noble thing. It's built into us all to want to feel that way. And of course, if no man is an island, we really are part of our people, of our extended family, and it is natural. It is natural, and it's not always wicked. It's not always evil. But nationalism, ultra-nationalism in certain perverted forms has been an incredible force for evil in Europe. Mm -hmm. The fascist movements in Europe, which have relied very heavily on Ethnic nationalism on racial nationalism have led European nations into committing some of the most unspeakable acts of evil in human history, bar none. It's made them feel we must be exceptionally careful when we feel that we have that swelling of national pride. Now, you won't find an American who ever questions, or you find very few Americans who will question that feeling of patriotism, which is a good feeling, which is a, which we all feel is an, an ennobling feeling. It moves us, and it's part of who we are. But in Europe, you, that is the first feeling that someone who feels patriotism will have. It's that sense of doubt of, oh, no, what does this mean about me? Am I deep down a fascist? And so you get people who want, on the one hand, to believe that they are part of a great nation and national tradition, and at the same time, there's an instant feeling of guilt, guilt and self-doubt, and that conflict leads to a form of black market nationalism, where nationalism, unacknowledged and not properly channeled, crops up in other ways. One of the ways, again, that it crops up is anti-Americanism. If you can't feel proud of your own country, then you're certainly not going to be very happy about people who very visibly do feel proud of theirs, and it is a form of nationalism, an unexpressed nationalism, to if you if you condemn the United States, that does make you, in a sense, better. And it's by the back door saying, but our country is better. But our traditions are better. Even if you can't come out and say it, if you can't argue it out in public like a man, you're gonna you're you're saying it in a in a sneaky way. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yes, the psychopathology of Europe. I think you really have it down. This is very interesting. With me is Claire Berlinski, author of Menace in Europe. We're describing the pathology of being European today. Uh, we'll be back right after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know. You have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City, as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern end have been eaten away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey. Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. 
And with me is my guest, Claire Berlinski, author of Menace in Europe, Why the Continent's Crisis is America's Too. And I can't resist since there's been a dust up with Russia lately. Maybe you followed some of it. What What do you think is going on there with the Russian president making these almost bullying statements? Uh, you know, what what is interesting is that um, Russia's descent into neo-authoritarianism has been something that's been on the cards for a long time. We've known this was this was happening. And what's been really interesting is that Europeans have exhibited very little anxiety about this. And it's not because there's not a real threat there. I think there really is. It's because they've known that the United States is there to counter it. Now, I don't think we're going to return to the darkest days of the Cold War. But I don't think this is going to be an easy relationship either. I don't think that our highest hopes at the end of the Cold War when the Berlin Wall came down have been fully realized. And perhaps it would have been naive to expect that they would be because Russia and all of the all the territories that comprise the Soviet Union lived under Soviet communism for a very long time, for more than more than several generations, and it has a profoundly corrupting influence. And as we're learning in Iraq, you, you, you do not just say, you don't just wave a magic wand and say, boom, you're a Democrat. Now you're a liberal market economy and you have all the values associated with that. It takes a really long time to build them. Yeah, totalitarianism really does make people cynical, doesn't it? It, it destroys, it absolutely destroys the most fundamental things that you need to have a functioning, healthy society. And it's a big question, possibly the biggest question of, this, of the coming century, is what do you do with peoples who have been ground under the heel of totalitarian regimes when they are no longer the heel of those regimes? How do you usher them into modernity? How do you usher them into civility when, that, when all of the values that comprise civility have been taken away from them and taken away from gen- for generations? Now, with this anti-Americanism, just throwing it in here for a second, is NATO in trouble? Could NATO break up? Could the alliances that comprise NATO become so strained that NATO is meaningless? I I, I probably think not. I think probably NATO is the strongest of, of the alliances that we have going for us. But what it can be used for at this point, I'm not sure, because the kinds of challenges that we face are not the kinds of challenges that NATO was put together to confront. And I don't think we're going to be fighting a conventional war in the center of Europe against the Soviet Union or its successor states. That's not going to happen. So what is NATO actually good for now? Is it good for the kinds of operations we're in in Iraq? No. Is it good for counterterrorism operations? No, not really. The better phrase question is, is NATO obsolete? Now, if you have any concluding remarks, you you said some things that we could interpret as pessimistic, but there is a silver lining in this cloud, and uh, Americans should feel good about some of the things that they've heard tonight, because by comparison, America's doing a lot better than Europe, isn't it? <laughs> you know, every time I get off the plane, when I fly back to America, I don't come back all that often because it's a huge trip from Turkey. It's, it's just, and you know, the state of modern air travel, it's really nightmarish getting from there to here. But when I come back, I am always astonished by how well America works. Because if you just read the news, all you see is gloomy news about America, and you see school shootings, and you see incredible political division. It seems like it, You would think that America was in much worse shape than it actually is. Get off the plane, and I think this country is actually ticking along very nicely. It's incredibly prosperous, and prosperous in a way that no other country in the world is. This high level of social harmony, of politeness, of getting alongness, um, of civility, of law-abiding behavior, and just driving in American City is such a pleasure because people, people are basically 
respectful of traffic laws. You think this is such a silly little thing, but it's emblematic of a society that's functioning well. Mm-hmm. The other cause for optimism, this is something I want to leave listeners with, is although I've pointed out some very, very dispiriting trends in Europe and trends that are not going to be easily reversed, I, I've taken a lot of comfort in the election of sensible politicians who have been much more forthright about addressing Europe's problems than Paul, any politicians have been prior to this. For example, Sarkozy in France, Angela Merkel in Germany, these are politicians who have come to power on platforms that, that really are forthright about discussing what, it, what France and Germany's problems are and how to, how to address them in ways that actually I relate to as making sense. They're not completely in cloud cuckoo land. I thought Ségolène Royal, the candidate for the French presidency, was completely off her trolley. But I didn't think Sarkozy was at all. I thought he was saying some very sensible things. So I think the French electorate is showing a sign of realizing some of what's going on. Um, and I think that's something to be encouraged by. It's not going to be easy to transform these very long-term cultural, historical, economic trends, but you can't give up hope. And I'm very optimistic to see what Sarkozy is going to do in power. Very good. So I'll leave you with that, that thought. Uh, tell uh, people how they can get your book. And I understand you've written a novel now that's available, too. I've written two novels. One is, The first one is called Loose Lips, and the second is called Lion Eyes. And Lion Eyes is partially set in Istanbul and partially set in Paris, um, cities that I, I obviously know and love very much. Um, and all of my books, Menace in Europe, Loose Lips, and Lion Eyes, are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Some of them should be in your local bookstores, but... I sometimes get letters from people who tell me they're not, so I can't guarantee it. But they are definitely available online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Yeah, you can definitely order them. And uh, uh, Claire Berlinski, author of Medicine Europe, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. I hope uh, we can call on you sometime when maybe something happens and we could uh, tap your knowledge. Absolutely. You can always call me in Istanbul, and in fact, the phone connection is usually pretty good, as good as this. <laughs> okay, very good. All right, Claire, thank you so much for being okay, on the show. thank you for having me on. That was fun. Yeah, it was great. You be well now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Every one of the crimes committed by Europeans does not compare to the good things that European civilization and culture has done. And I think we need to build on that positive thing. And we have to realize that without Christian tradition and the great freedoms that we've built up, if we cannot preserve those things, there's not going to be hope for the rest of the world. Because in the West is where you find people treated with the greatest respect and decency. It's where you find democracy. It's where you find freedom. And if we can't save the West, if we can't preserve it and preserve our traditions and our religion, and perhaps there's nothing that can be done for the rest of the world, which is sunk in war and tragedy. So leaving you with that thought, I am Jeff Nyquist. Thank you for being with us in the program, and I hope you'll join us next week at this same time. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, You've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.